Back in 1984, the University of Albany welcomed a new class of medical school students. Among this group of aspiring doctors was a young man named Kurt. He was embarking on a new journey, following in his father's footsteps. My dad was an OBGYN. My dad was very much into including me into his work as he wanted me and my brother to go into medicine, um, which worked. That September, Kurt settled into the med school routine. Classes, studying, time in the lab, more classes, more studying, dinner, sleep, repeat. A few weeks into his first semester, Kurt went down to the basement of the medical college to check his mail. Kurt opened this tiny, dark box and found a letter waiting for him. I think, I think it said, dear medical student, I don't remember, but it was like a serious letter to every male student in the medical school class. The letter was from Kurt's OBGYN program. It laid out a proposition to students. It explained, This is our program. This is what we're trying to achieve. We're helping people who can't conceive normally, blah, blah, blah. We're always looking for qualified candidates for sperm donors. To me, the, the impression I got was this was like a, almost a personal letter from the head of the program to a fellow doctor-to-be, so almost like, almost like peer-to-peer. You know, I'm just starting med school, so this is the first thing you get where you sort of feel like you're in the medical community, and you're like, yes, I'm in the club. <laughs> the proposition appealed to Kurt. He'd be helping fellow doctors, infertile couples. Oh, and he'd get paid to do it. Donors in the program were paid $25 per sperm sample. When you have no income, $25 does sound like a nice little perk. Plus, it was all going to be anonymous. Kurt thought, why shouldn't I donate? You know, there's probably a little ego involved where you sit there and go, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a great guy, I'm athletic, I'm smart, I think I'm good looking. You know, why not? So, Kurt signed up and so did a bunch of his classmates. The approval process was simple enough. Kurt provided a sperm sample, some family medical history. He went through a physical. And he passed. Kurt was officially a sperm donor. A few months into his new gig, he talked with some classmates who were also donating. One night, we're all in the library studying. My friend, the triathlete, comes up and he goes, hey, um, are you guys working much? And, and my roommate goes, yeah, maybe like once, twice a month. And he goes, yeah, that's, that's all I'm getting, too. And I'm looking at him with, like, shocks and disbelief. And I'm like, really? You're only working once or twice a month? They got me freaking working three days a week. Turns out, Kurt was popular. So popular that he donated his sperm hundreds of times. He remembers doing it three days a week for three years. Kurt was a desirable candidate for a few reasons. He was tall, he had blue eyes, he was athletic. And, of course, he was going to be a doctor. Whatever the reasons, Kurt just thought of his new gig as a good side hustle. There really wasn't any emotion. It was like donating blood. You know, you're, you're giving something that you have, somebody else can use. Um, there's no harm to me. It's just like, here, take this. Kurt graduated from Albany Med in 1988 and went on with his life. After he finished school, Kurt didn't spend too much time thinking about his past as a sperm donor. If anything, it was just good fodder for cocktail parties. I mean, because, you know, it's an interesting story, you know. Hey, I probably have 75 kids out there. 
Yeah, you heard that right. Kurt believes he has at least 75 children. That's based on the number of times he donated and the potential pregnancies that could have come from those donations. But those are just his estimates. The real number could be lower or much higher. This is all a bit ironic because Kurt says he's never felt paternal. It just, I could sort of, I sort of saw the drain that kids bring to your life. My perspective was I wanted to travel. I wanted to go skiing. And when I mean skiing, I wanted to ski. I didn't want to be taking a kid out of the slopes trying to teach him to ski. Today, Kurt lives in California with his partner. They've been together a long time, just over 35 years. He knew she was the one for a lot of reasons, but especially because... She had absolutely no interest in having kids, and so I said, thank God, because I don't want to have kids either. Without children, Kurt got the life that he wanted. He travels the world with his partner. He goes hella skiing and cliff jumping. He never needed a minivan. Instead, he cruises around in a Porsche. But in 2017, Kurt got some news that threatened to interfere with his life plans. His nephew told him that these two women, Amber and Caitlin, had reached out in 23andMe and said they were looking for their biological father, who was a sperm donor. Kurt knew he had been found. I don't need to get involved in this. I was just, I don't need to complicate my life. I don't want to complicate their life. The reality that your offspring may very well find you doesn't mean that you have to let them into your life. You're listening to Biohacked, Family Secrets. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. On today's show, Amber and Caitlin go on the hunt for Kurt, but what happens if he doesn't want to be found? That's next. After connecting on 23andMe, Amber and Caitlin joined forces to find their biological father. At first, they didn't have much information to work with. They knew their donor was a tall, blonde, blue-eyed doctor, which didn't really help to narrow things down. But when they connected with their biological cousins, Kurt's nephews, they found their needle in the haystack. Now they had his name, his photo, he knew what state he lived in and where he worked. For Caitlin, who had known she was donor-conceived for 17 years, that was resolution enough. The fact that we found his picture is miles ahead of what I all like ever thought was possible. And so for me, I felt very like, like I did it, I won. Like I got all of this information. How satisfying. But Caitlin could sense that Amber who had just learned about her origins, was unsettled. Yeah, obviously I feel more strongly about this because this was a traumatic thing that happened to me. Amber was determined to find Kurt. She thought it might help her make sense of everything. But she wasn't sure of the best way to reach out. There's no playbook for contacting a stranger and saying, hey, you're my biological father. Want to chat? So 
Amber joined a Facebook community for donor-conceived people in search of answers and guidance. This group is called We Are Donor Conceived. We all give each other tips and tricks because, you know, there are a shocking number of people I discovered that are going through exactly what I've been through or worse. Amber asked the group what she and Caitlin should do about Kurt. A lot of members suggested a tactical strategy. They said, if you're contacting a biological parent for the first time, you should send a letter, but be mindful of what you write in the letter. Don't come off too thirsty. Put yourself in the donor's shoes. They might be freaked out to hear from you, especially if their donation was anonymous. So Caitlin and I uh, wrote a letter that basically just said, like, look, um, we're not looking for anything. We're not looking for money. And, you know, we'd love to know more about you, but, you know, no pressure. We included our photos and we sent it to him, certified mail. Just to make sure that he got it so that there was no, if he didn't respond, we wouldn't wonder, did it get lost in the mail? We would know for sure it was a choice. Even though Amber and Caitlin wanted to get to know Kurt, they didn't focus on that in the letter. Instead, they made an appeal for medical information. I realized that I'd been filling out my medical history wrong my entire life. I, I had no idea, you know, what was in store for me in that sense. Every time I've gone to the doctor, I filled out what I know about my family's medical history. From my mom, my dad, my grandparents. You've probably done it too. But for her entire life... Amber had been filling out this information based on her dad's family history, not Kurt's. And then as I, you know, found donor-conceived communities online uh, and support groups, I started hearing all these horror stories of people who had inherited medical conditions from their donors that they didn't know that they had. When Kurt was in his 20s, he was healthy. If he was hit with cancer or heart disease or something else in his 30s or 40s, or if his parents were diagnosed with a terminal condition, Amber and Caitlin and their parents would have never been told. That's because U.S. law doesn't require that donors share updated health information, ever. And so that started to really scare me in terms of, you know, do I have some kind of gene for cancer that is kind of slowly growing inside me that, you know, would normally be flagged, but hasn't been because I just don't have this information. Amber and Caitlin were hoping that Kurt, a doctor, would understand their appeal. If he replied to the letter, they could get the medical information they asked for and maybe open the door for something else. A chance to connect with him and possibly even establish a real relationship. Amber and Caitlin waited for a response, and waited, and waited. So we kind of thought it was just dead in the water. Summer changed to autumn, and there was nothing from Kurt. Amber had almost given up hope. But then? I woke up to a text from Caitlin that just said, Oh my God, the email. And I was just like, what, what? And she's like, he emailed us. A letter, this time to Caitlin and Amber. That's next, after the break. 
This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. It was kind of a, a little bit of a holy shit moment. Back in the summer of 2017, when Kurt heard from his nephews that these two strangers, Amber and Caitlin, had reached out looking for their sperm donor, he was surprised, but he wasn't shocked. He had donated his sperm hundreds of times. Statistically, he knew he must have a lot of biological kids out there. I probably subconsciously realized that these doors were opening because you've read articles about people doing this in the news and you know that you're one of these people that were a major donor. And so you have to think, well, this could happen to me. Kurt thought he was safe because he hadn't done an at-home DNA kit. But he didn't warn the rest of his family not to do kits from 23andMe and Ancestry.com. His day had come. I was like, I still have the option of not getting involved in this. You know, so I, I had a firewall. Kurt's right. He signed up to be an anonymous sperm donor. And that anonymity was placed in a contract a contract that Amber and Caitlin's families also signed. Plus, Kurt never wanted kids. He didn't want to be a parent. And even though Amber and Caitlin were interested in talking with him, he didn't feel like there was anything significant about their biological connection. I'm not your father. Your father's the guy that teaches you to ride a bike. He's the guy that picks you up when you fall. He's the guy that, you know, is there all of your life growing up, helping you with this, that, and the other thing. I was just some DNA. Kurt decided to stay silent. His nephews blocked Amber and Caitlin on Facebook, and Kurt figured that was the end of it. You know, I didn't know if they were going to be able to figure out who I was or where I was. I figured there's no way they would actually find me. Little did I understand Amber's abilities. (laughs) Two months after his nephews blocked Caitlin and Amber, Kurt received a certified letter in the mail. I found it interesting and maybe a little bit grating. The letter was couched in that the only reason they wanted to contact me or the primary reason for trying to contact me was Amber wanted to know her family medical history. 
But I could tell from the letter there was a lot more interest in meeting me other than just what's what's my family history. Kurt felt the appeal was disingenuous and was a little annoyed by it. He had been screened by the clinic. He was a healthy guy. Why were they so curious about his medical history? And it wasn't just that. He could sense that Amber and Caitlin may have wanted to connect with him, to know him. If he did respond to these women, the relationship between them would no longer just be medical or genetic or biological. It'd be emotional. He would be opening a door, and it wasn't clear what was on the other side. He thought about it. He talked with his partner, and he did some reading. I don't know if this was, this is the universe at play, if this was kismet or karma, if it was just the nature of the time, because this was happening on the internet. Within the span of two weeks after getting that letter, I was fed like seven different articles about people finding their biological parents and biological siblings because of sperm donors. And then a couple of um, very heartfelt, essays by sperm donor children uh, about what a hole it was in their life that they didn't know who their father was and how much it meant for them to meet this person. These appeals from donor-conceived adults who yearned to know where they came from struck Kurt. Maybe it even made him feel a bit paternal. He didn't want to be selfish. He wouldn't give up anything by answering Amber and Caitlin's questions. Plus, I have to admit, I was kind of curious to see what my kids would look like or act like and be like. I mean, there's always that, you know, God, you made all these kids. I wonder what they're losers, you know. Um, and so, you know, over the course of, I don't know, probably took a month. Um, I just kind of changed my point of view after reading a bunch of stuff. And so I reached out to, the, to Caitlin and Amber and they said, hey, what the hell? Let's let's talk. Kurt emailed Caitlin and Amber to say that he didn't have any medical conditions and that his parents had lived to a very old age. He also cracked the door open a bit. He told us a little bit about himself as far as, like, professional experience, his interests, his hobbies, where he was in life, and kind of said, you know, I'm an open book, anything you want to know. And so from there, we, you know, coordinated through email and set up like a three-way face-way, uh, face-way, a three-way FaceTime. Amber and Caitlin were both excited to talk to Kurt. They'd gone from thinking that he might always remain a black box to planning a time to see and speak to him. Though Kurt agreed to do this video chat, Amber knew that this could be the only time he would ever speak to her. He might answer their questions and move on. Amber was at home and started to prep for the call. I was, like, agonizing over, like, my hair, my makeup, like, what I was going to wear. I was like, I'm going to have a glass of wine to calm down. And then I was like, no, I can't, like, I don't want to be drunk. I don't want to be, like, I don't want to forget anything. I don't want to, like, I was just totally panicked. Amber was ready and waiting for the call. There was some technical bungling at first. A true boomer and millennial dynamic to overcome. But then they all appeared on the screen. They could finally see each other in motion. It was crazy. Like, he calls me the clone. 
because we found he and I really do look dramatically alike. Um, And it also just blew my mind because I was just like, how did I think I looked like anyone else? It was like seeing colors for the first time. Like, I can't even describe how, like, seeing Caitlin was surreal, and then this was just, like, beyond, beyond surreal. It felt very fictional. It felt very, like, this is a dream I'm going to wake up from. There's a, you know, a woman and a man on my screen talking to me. They both look like me. They're both strangers. It was just like, oh my God, she's me. She acts just like me. God, it's my freaking twin. (laughs) The conversation was a bit clinical at first. Caitlin and Amber asked Kurt more specific questions about his medical history, his family genealogy and heritage, his professional background. But as the conversation continued, Kurt opened the door a bit more. He asked about Amber and Caitlin's lives, about how they grew up. They were all swapping stories and making jokes. And it was just, it was like an immediate clicking. We were just talking about a lot of things. And again, like similarly realizing like we all had a lot in common. All three of us are very like athletic and into like hiking and stuff like that. All of us are avid world travelers. You know, we just talked and we had some great conversations and that was it. They talked for two and a half hours. But after the conversation, Amber and Caitlin weren't sure what to expect next. Like there's no template for this, right? Like... There's no like, oh, here's your standard relationship expectations and societal norms for connecting with your long-lost biological father. Like, and we also didn't know how he felt. Like, was he like, all right, I fulfilled my obligation of like talking to these girls, like goodbye forever. That uncertainty clung all over Amber and Caitlin. For them, it was kind of like managing a new relationship. They didn't want to seem too clingy, too invested, or they might get ghosted. Oh, this is weird, you know, because the clinical just became real. Now there's a real-life person involved here. Kurt cracked the door open, but is he really ready to walk through? That's next. Stay with us. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? 
From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. After Amber and Caitlin video chatted with Kurt, they weren't sure what to expect. Was that it? Was that the one chance they'd get to talk to their biological father? Kurt spent some time thinking about the interaction, too, and came to a realization. He was interested in actually getting to know Caitlin and Amber. For real. You are curious about what your kids are like. You always have been. This has been a thought in the back of your brain for 30 years. So when the opportunity presented itself to meet his donor offspring, Kurt swung the door wide open. Caitlin lives in Chicago, and a few weeks after that first group FaceTime, Kurt had reached out to say, Hey, I'm coming to Chicago this weekend. Let's grab dinner. And I told Amber, and she's like, Oh my God, can I come to Chicago too? And Caitlin said, Absolutely. I mean, no hesitation. And she goes, You know, Amber and I haven't actually met in person. I know that if she knows you're going to come here, she'll come in a hot minute. And so, sure enough, Amber was like, I'm on my way. Amber wanted to remember this. So she recorded some of her thoughts as she prepared to board her flight to Chicago to meet Caitlin and Kurt for the first time. I can't really believe this is happening. And it feels really surreal. Like I'm just kind of playing this thing out, and it's someone else's situation or someone else's life. But I feel like seeing them will make it feel real. Amber's flight arrived in Chicago right on time. She boarded the L train and headed to Caitlin's apartment. It was the first time they would meet, and Amber was going to stay with Caitlin for the weekend. I suddenly kind of had that feeling of almost like a first date times a thousand. I was so worried, you know, what if they don't like me? What if I don't like them? What if it's awkward? What if it's bad? What if this is a huge mistake? What if it goes really poorly? I'm kind of trapped in Chicago. Like, (laughs) what am I going to do? So this was like a tremendous leap of faith in that, like, this would all work out. Amber's clammy hands held the railing as the train chugged closer and closer to her stop. And then, like, the second that, you know, I got off the train, she just gave me this huge hug, and, like, we were just like, ah, like, I can't believe this is happening. And she was just like, I can't believe you're here. And it was just like, it just immediately just, like, felt good. Amber and Caitlin had some time to kill before meeting Kurt for dinner. So they went to Caitlin's apartment to get ready and began scrutinizing every detail. You know, I was like, can I wear this? What do you wear to go meet your father? Does this, you know, like, it was like this weird first impression. It was really humid. My hair had gotten really frizzy, and I was, like, freaking out about how frizzy my hair had gotten. And then she was like, we need to have a drink. We need to have a drink. We were, like, drinking wine, like, before dinner because we were just both, like, just, like, Running around like chickens with our heads cut off, we were just in a total, like, giddy, like, panic. Caitlin and Amber headed over to the restaurant, but Kurt wasn't there yet. He sent us, 
you can like send people to track your Uber. So we're like watching his Uber on the phone get closer and closer, like minute by minute updates, just like in anticipation. Literally just 20 minutes of like, oh my God, oh my God, it's coming, it's coming. They had been waiting for Kurt. Caitlin for years, Amber for months, and then together for 20 excruciating minutes. Finally, the door to the restaurant opened and this man walked through. Tall, light hair, blue eyes. He was wearing a leather jacket and jeans. It was Kurt. He just walked up to us and was like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) Just like put his arms out and was like, hi, and gave us big hugs. I mean, we're laughing and joking. And it was funny because like halfway through the dinner at one point, Caitlin goes, if I close my eyes, I can't tell which one of you two is laughing. We all just kept looking at each other. Like, I just remember, like, looking at Kurt and looking at Caitlin and then looking back at Kurt again. And I just, like, couldn't stop looking at them. Like, I was completely transfixed. They all hit it off immediately. We shared so many bottles of wine. We ordered some drinks and then we all kind of just like got into a flow. Like we just started talking and we never stopped. It didn't feel awkward at all. He was just so nice and... We had dinner for like three hours or something. We just enjoyed each other's company to the point where finally they said, you know, you believe the restaurant's closing. And then we went to a wine bar and we were literally out until three in the morning. We just could not stop talking to each other. We just talked and talked and talked and talked. The entire experience? That was explosive. It was just to meet them in person and interact with them in a weird way. It's like I'd known them all their lives. I mean, it's like we became instant, like, best friends. And then, you know, we were just laughing like old friends. It it, it was just really fun. There was just this automatic easiness. I felt like I had known both of them my entire life. At the end of the night, Kurt went back to his hotel, and Amber and Caitlin hopped in a cab, a bit high on the experience. I just remember we're, like, very drunk in a cab, just, like, screaming, and we're, like, telling the cab driver. She was just like, this is my sister, and I didn't even know she existed. (laughs) And we just met our dad. (laughs) Yeah, I was raised as an only child, so... Like, take a lot of acid, and that's been my night tonight. <laughs> but it went really well. It went really well. He's a cool guy. Well, he, that's fine. Then that's all I could ask <laughs> for. Kurt, Caitlin, and Amber are really happy they got together. And the meeting took Kurt by surprise, too. I don't view them, you know, I don't think of them as my kids, though. I have to say there's probably been times where, like, oh, I'm proud of them. You know, but that's kind of a weird sensation for me because, you know, I've never had anybody to be proud of, so to speak. But these two, they're this weird place between being a niece or nephew and, and being a really good friend. Amber, Caitlin, and Kurt still stay in touch through occasional phone calls and some emails. They've met in person a few more times, and it's been fun. Amber and Caitlin don't view him as a parent or a father, though. More like a cool uncle. When Amber finally told her mom and dad she had met up with Kurt and Caitlin in Chicago, her parents didn't want to discuss it much. My mom didn't want to deal with it, and she didn't want to talk about that, and she made that pretty clear. Um, Whereas my dad, I think, was trying to be a little bit more supportive and um, would ask me, 
you know, about what was going on or, like, had I found more siblings. Amber's mom and dad declined to speak with me, so I can't ask them how they feel about everything. But one could imagine this was a lot for them to process, too. And there could be a few reasons for why they don't want to talk about this all so publicly. Amber's mom and dad are boomers, and keeping family business private is something a lot of people their age were taught. It could be that they never dealt with the trauma of their own infertility, and discussing it is painful, even with Amber. It could be that they were told by doctors to keep this secret, and that idea has shaped their lives for decades. It could be that they just don't feel like discussing it. But for Amber, being open about all of this has been key. She says it's part of how she's made sense of these revelations. It's still not easy. I don't think it'll be ever something I, like, fully am, like, cool with. Like, every time a new half-sibling pops up, I'm like, LOL, this is just, like, a totally insane thing, and this is just going to keep happening for, like, who knows how long. I'm not pretending like this didn't happen. I don't have that luxury. In the last few years, genetic tests have led eight more half-siblings to Caitlin and Amber. Three of them are like Caitlin and knew they came from a sperm donor. But five of them are like Amber and had no idea. As the first two of a growing brood, Amber and Caitlin make themselves available to answer questions. They've started a group chat and... This year, I finally completed my uh, onboarding packet, as I am calling it. This onboarding packet is a slideshow presentation that has a lot of information, including Kurt's bio, some photos of him, details about his family medical history, his heritage and relatives. There's also info on all of the known half-siblings, complete with bios and photos. It's a way to say, uh welcome to the family, and a way to streamline things as more and more people pop up on 23andMe. It's kind of just the download, like here's everything we know, and then if there's more questions, we can take it from there. But it really just saves everyone a lot of time and energy. And, you know, at this scale, if we're going to have to do this 70 or 100 times, I figured that was more efficient. But again, it feels completely dystopian to do this. It's completely wild that no one thought, hmm, maybe somebody shouldn't have 100 siblings. It's impossible to manage, and it's impossible. How do you manage relationships with 70 people? Even though she found a bit of closure connecting with Kurt and Caitlin, Amber's become angry. Angry that she is re-traumatized as she discovers more and more half-siblings. Angry that she keeps meeting other donor-conceived people who are going through the same thing. And she lays the blame at the feet of the fertility industry. I really don't blame donors. I don't blame recipients. I don't blame, you know, the parents. I blame the industry. As I learned more about Amber's story, it got me thinking. What happens when we turn human reproduction into a for-profit industry worth billions of dollars? Do we need new rules? And if so, who gets to make them? 
finding out the donor's family had such serious symptoms made me fucking angry. It was really shocking because she was only 28 at the time, like a very healthy person. Yeah, I couldn't believe her prognosis was, was really, really bad. If your daughter had died as a result of egg donation, maybe you'd feel a little differently about it. They screwed up and gave life to somebody with a disease that they basically built in. This decision you made to track me down, like the Golden State Killer, will affect me for the rest of my life. All season long, we'll dive into the baby business and discover what happens after the happy family reunion. Biohacked Family Secrets is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Our program is edited by Maureen McMurray. Our producers are Nick Mott, Krista Ripple, Shane McKeon, and Jennifer Siegel. Jenny Kim is our production manager, and Alicia Baitoup composed the theme. Our fact checkers are Will Tavlin and Ava Ahmed Behi. This episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Nuna Sharafadeen, Amy Eason, Jennifer Womack, and Allison Sherry. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJRaphael or email us at biohacked at 3uncanny4.com. For 3uncanny4 and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael.